0: Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with jazz saxophonist Jimmy Green. He's on the heels of his 2017 CD Beautiful Life Volume 2, a follow up to Volume 1 that is in honor of his daughter, Anna, who lost her life in the tragic Sandy Hook school shooting. He grew up in Hartford, Connecticut, and has gone on to perform all over the world. His Jimmy Green Quartet performs regularly in jazz venues, festivals, and clubs. He's been on 75 albums as a sideman. He's toured and recorded with Horace Silver, Tom Harrell, Freddie Hubbard, Harry Connick Jr., and Kenny Barron. And these days, he's an assistant professor of music and a coordinator of jazz studies at Western Connecticut State University. He talked about music, healing, and the future, and so much more. Get to know him. And dig this interview, my friends.
1: Hey, Jimmy. Thank you for taking a minute out for me today. I appreciate it. My pleasure. So I'm going to go ahead and start off here with your latest album, Beautiful Life Volume Two. Yes. Great album. I loved it. And I want to you. know. I, I, you bet. I want to know what went into this album. Why Volume Two, and how do you feel about how this album came out?
2: Well, I'll answer your first question. Why Volume Two? Um... There's a story that I tell in the liner notes. The release concert, uh, the first concert after the release of the album Beautiful Life, the album was released in November, late November of 2014, and there was a concert in early December of 2014, pretty close to where we live at the university where I coordinate the jazz studies program, Western Connecticut State University. Uh, It's in Danbury, Connecticut, about an hour north of New York City. And uh, we had a concert with Rini Rosness and John Petrucci and Jeff Tane Watts and myself, Quartet. And we were joined on the last song by a children's choir and uh, some other uh, musicians, uh, some former students of mine, Greg Lepine and Teresa Peters. So we recreated the last track on the Beautiful Life album called uh, Little Voices. And throughout the concert, um, my daughter Anna's, probably her, closest friend from birth. uh, Her name, uh, well, I want to give her name in case her parents, you know, aren't uh, aren't keen on that. So she was sitting next to my wife during the concert, and she leaned over to her and said, you know, Auntie Nelba, this music is beautiful, but it's very slow and very sad. You know, Anna was a very lively girl. She would have liked something she could dance to. And um, my wife shared this little tidbit with me later on. In the evening, um, my first reaction was, "Oh my goodness, what, what else do we need to do up there?" You know, we're trying our best, but uh, you know, the more the more I thought about it as the days went on, the more I realized, you know, what she's right. You know, if Anna were here, she would love uh, music she could dance to because she loved music. She loved to sing, and for her, music and dance was all one thing. You know, so that kind of got me pointed in toward the direction of this album, and had a lot of help. I mentioned the musicians that played on that initial release concert. Um, they all joined me for the second album, and I actually added a couple more musicians to that group, percussionist Rogério Boccato, with whom uh, I've been friends for quite some time since he and his family uh, moved to this area from Brazil. And he teaches quite a bit. He teaches at the Manhattan School of Music, and he's taught at the Hart School and other places, Queens College. And uh, actually, I added, in the process of working on a doctorate degree uh, at Manhattan School of Music, I was able to take an independent study with him in Brazilian rhythm. And so some of the songs on this album are a direct result of my studies in Brazilian rhythms with Ruggiero. The other musician uh, that's added to the group is Mike Moreno, the guitarist. And I've, I've always loved Mike's playing. He actually recorded with me before on my album from 2007 called Gifts and Givers. And I heard Mike's sound and, uh, well, you know, added to the rest of the musicians in that particular group. And uh, the other group on the album is uh, a quartet that I formed about, I don't know, a year and a half ago. And it's Kevin Hayes, uh, Ben Williams, and Otis Brown III. And um, I love playing with both groups And I wanted them, uh, you know The music that I wrote for this album All of it, except for all the tracks Except for one Which is, uh, the I believe it's the sixth track on the album Someday is a slow ballad But all the rest of the tracks on the album Were envisioned with dance rhythms And kind of created with dancing Or moving in mind
1: Right on. And before we depart the entirety of Volume 1 and Volume 2 and move into your childhood, i got to ask you, was your daughter a big jazz fan? My daughter was a
2: huge music fan. I mean, we didn't make distinctions between jazz and this and that. We just played music all the time, and music was always on in the car. Music was on in the house. Um, yeah, so there's all kind of music. We listened to, uh, you know, there was the music the kids had, which... Was children's music and and show tunes and and I love musical Annie. They had you know we had we got some music for some friends uh, called the, I think it's a, a series called Baby Loves Jazz. It's kind of these uh really clever uh, reworkings of um, not reworkings but they're, they're new compositions but geared towards kids and with certain themes in mind and then you know, whatever music we were listening to, whether that be gospel music or classical music or jazz or R&B or, you know, uh, whatever was, whatever, pop music, whatever, was, we listened to all of it. So Right on. you know, Anna just, she just loved music, period. She loves to sing and, and yeah, and loves to move around.
1: Absolutely. You know, at the en- at the end of the day, music tends to be one of those things that I think is going to save us and keeps us sane and keeps us in that mode of moving forward. How cathartic was the first volume when you released it after going through what you went through? How cathartic was it to release that album in honor of your daughter and to have a musical epitaph, so to speak?
2: Well, I, I you know, for me, honestly, the the helpful part wasn't necessarily the release of the album, but the process of, of going through, you know, and, and writing the music, you know, and, and cathartic. I, I hesitate to use that word because there was really no, you know, brightness at the end of the process or whatever. There's, there's the grief process is long and ongoing and, and still going on today. You know, so it's helpful for me as a musician to have, you know, an outlet to express feelings and thoughts and, and, and emotions and, and that words just can't, you know, and that to have. Music is a is an amazing means of communication. It's an amazing means of of um, connection, you know. So I'm I'm thankful I have that medium uh, to work in and, and sitting and writing the songs, you know, and and arranging them and, and you know, kinda fine tuning them, to me that that process is is, is so incredibly uh it's a beautiful process, and, and I'm glad that I could have something else to focus on um, during these months and years after my daughter was killed. Something else to focus on besides the, the daily, you know, grief that that you know is, is a part of my life and a part of my family's life.
1: So let me go back in your life to your childhood in Hartford, Connecticut. How did you get into a position where you fell in love with jazz and has made such a rich career out of it for you?
2: Well, I had a lot of people around me that, that you know, were really instrumental in, in, in kind of moving me along and helping me develop this, you know, help me see through the passion I had for music. Uh, first of all, uh, my dad was never a professional musician, but um was very, very um, interested in learning how to make music himself, even though he was he's his graduate degrees are in math and business and, and engineering. He always wanted to learn how to make music so he took a correspondence course uh in the early seventies from Berkeley College of Music and learned about songwriting and arranging. And you know, by the time my me and my siblings came around he kinda of passed on you know, when he moved to us and got it, got us instruments and got us going when we were pretty young. But, you know, having access to an instrument was great at that age, but I never really practiced it and I wasn't forced to practice it, really. Uh, and for me, I look back on it now, and I, I thank my parents for not forcing it down my throat. You have to practice an hour a day or whatever because I was really, honestly, at that point interested in a lot of the things. I, I love baseball, you know, I love um you know, doing things that, that kids love to do. I love, At one point, I was into video games and, and basketball and, and all kind of other things. So um I look back, and, and when I was young, I, I was exposed to jazz music. Um, it, it was never played a lot in my house. Uh, my father was not even a big, he wasn't a big jazz fan. Uh, my mom wasn't really a big jazz fan, but You know, growing up as African Americans, in the time that they did, they were familiar with the music because, you know, um, my dad, for example, grew up in Alabama, and radio stations in those days, black radio stations played everything, you know. They played uh, blues and jazz and gospel and R&B and soul, you know, so he he was aware of all the great jazz saxophonists, even though uh, he didn't necessarily... You know, listen to them a lot, but he knew about Dexter Gordon and Sonny Rollins and Charlie Parker and John Coltrane. So when I got interested in it, you know, he, he bought me records uh, of theirs. And my mom, from my mom's side of the family, my grandparents uh, grew up, you know, they were uh, teenagers during World War II. So they, you know, they were coming of age in the height of the big band era. So my grandfather always talks about loving Jimmy Lunsford's band and going to see them and, and, and you know, Count Basie's orchestra live in person when they would tour through Connecticut. So, wow. um, you know, they always had uh, jazz music playing. And we went, I remember as a seven-year-old going to hear, I just remember the names. I don't really remember the music so much, but I remember the names. Uh, near my hometown, in the summer concert of Oscar Peterson and Ella Fitzgerald. And uh, this is in the the early 80s. So, I mean, I was exposed to the music. I I didn't really pay much attention to it. Uh, But by the time I got into the 7th and 8th grade, uh, particularly 8th grade, um, I had a teacher. uh, Actually, there was an opening in the the, um, high school jazz band. Uh, A couple of tenor sax players were also football players. I had to miss a lot of the rehearsals because of football practice, so I needed, you know, someone to come fill in. So I got invited uh, from the eighth grade to come up to the high school to fill in, and I really enjoyed the experience. And, and the guys that were in the high school band, my sister was one of them. She's a year older. She was in the high school jazz band. But so the older kids, the seniors and the juniors, were really uh, helpful making me cassette tapes of things to listen to and things of that nature. So uh, I really started to listen to the music, uh, in the 8th grade and started to ask my dad about those records, and he let me borrow a couple of records, you, you know, there's some records of his that he had in his songwriting studies that he uh, owned. Uh, one was uh, Oliver Nelson's arrangements on a Cannibal Island record called Domination. He had another record, kind of a compilation, called Jerry Mulligan, The Arranger, and he also had a record of Coleman Hawkins called The Hawk Flies High, and I really fell in love with that one, Uh just sound, of Coleman Hawkins in the, in the band, and the small group. I really, I listened to it over and over and over and over again. So I, you know, I asked him to get me some more records, and he did. And so I really started listening, probably around the time I was 14 years old, big time, started to become a big fan of the music and had teachers along the way to, to, to help me out. There was one woman in particular named Yvonne Redondi who, Ran what was called the creative arts program for secondary students at Bloomfield High School in Bloomfield, Connecticut, where I where I grew up. And she, well, her job was, was to pair up students who were really interested in the arts to mentors in the area. And so, who happened to be in my area, uh, who was a, was a master of the art form that I really love, uh, saxophone in particular, and, and jazz music, was Jackie McQueen. And she knew of his um, community art school, the artist collective, and uh, she made uh, the connection. She she got me um, invited to go over to the artist collective uh, on a Saturday morning. I, I remember the date to this day is uh, November early November 1990. I think it was November 3rd, and my mom drove me over uh, to uh, the artist collective, and I pulled up. We pulled up in front of the building. which was old. Uh, pre-war school building uh, in, in the north end of Hartford and the building wasn't much to look at but uh, I remember opening the door and stepping out and just hearing the sound cascading out of the windows and I'd never heard anything like that before I'm walking in the door the, was the Clark Street School that the artist collective had found the Tolman and there were no carpets really uh, it was hardwood floors and plaster walls I and mean, if you've ever heard Jackie McLean sound in person it was the most humongous, piercing, you know, resonant saxophone sound,
1: mm.
2: bouncing off all that plaster and hardwood, and just you could hear it around the whole neighborhood. Mm. And I would never heard anything like that in my life before. Uh, I never heard anybody play a saxophone like that. Huh. And in person, at least, and uh, I said, this, this is what I want to do. This is this is me right here. So from that moment, I knew that this is what I wanted.
1: Beautiful. So, when you did start performing live and you got in, you got really into it, were you nervous or was the stage a natural place for you? Uh,
2: That's a good question. I mean, I think with anything, you know, any activity you do, you know, I've spent so much time practicing and so much time rehearsing and and so much time, you know, listening and, and imagining by the time you get on the stage, you know, you have a group that you've prepared some material with, and and so there might be a little nervousness. Uh, there probably was a little nervousness uh, leading up to those early performances, but there's just a lot of, you know, there's so much preparation that goes into it, there's so many little details that you're thinking of at the moment. Once the first note starts, you know, once maybe, you know, waiting to go on stage, there's a little nervousness, but once you're playing, you know, the nerves go away. You just focus on all the million things that are, that are going on in the moment when you're trying to improvise, you know. I'll say this. There were some times where I was very nervous leading up to a performance, the month competition when I was uh, in college. Uh, I, was, I remember, goodness, being so nervous uh, just waiting to – because, you know, the way the competition was structured, at least at that time in 1996, uh, you didn't meet the rhythm section that was performing with you at the semifinals until you actually walked up on the stage and were going to start to play. And the rhythm section at that for that particular competition was uh, Kenny Barron and Christian McBride and Louis Nash. And all of them were musicians that I really, really looked up to at the time. And then a couple of that with looking at the back of the auditorium and knowing, thankfully, they sat really toward the back of the Smithsonian Auditorium, so you couldn't really see them unless you were really trying to find them. But it was Wayne Shorter and Joe Lovano and Jimmy Heath and Josh Redman, and, and J-Mac was, was one of the judges as well. So there's there's a whole lot of things that, that made me nervous about that performance. But like huh. I said, I remember holding a, a bottle of uh, water in my hand, and walking onto the stage and thinking to myself, before you start playing, take some water and drink. Just, you know, it doesn't matter if it takes a moment, if people just take some water and drink and try to calm yourself down. or something, you know? <laughs> 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 And I did, and, you know, we started the first tune, and from that first note, you know, like I said, your mind is, is so occupied with all that, uh, that's going on in the moment, you know, trying to listen, trying to hear, trying to, React and, and and have a dialogue with the musicians on stage and, and improvise. And, you know, you. Yeah, I don't think, for me at least, I didn't have the mental energy to be nervous anymore. But uh, it's funny. Uh, later, I got some uh, feedback as to um, why they chose me as a finalist, one of the three finalists, and they they cited my poise and my confidence. And I was I kind of laughed inside. I like, Wow, I didn't feel poised or confident walking out. I was nervous to <laughs> me. But, yeah, I mean, now these days I don't, I don't get nervous in really before performing because, you know, it, 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 that's who I am and that's what I do. And you do, you, like I said at the beginning, the more and more you do something, you know, the more comfortable it becomes. When you're really young and doing it for the first time or this situation is the first time of this or the first time of that, those things can be a little nerve-wracking. But once you've kind of done things over and over and over and over again, you kind of develop a certain, a certain level of comfort and a certain level of confidence that, you know, you've done it before, you do it again,
0: you
1: know? Absolutely. You know, you're a well-educated man, and I think sometimes in life we're only as good as the educators that really instill all of these, these nuggets of wisdom and, and teachings in our brain. Is there any teachers... Not even teachers, but is there any advice that you got over the years that really resonates with you to this day still? When you either climb on stage or go into the studio as an active jazz musician,
2: oh, there's too many to count. There's yeah. so many. I mean, every time I pick up my instrument or every time I sit down at a piano or a keyboard in my computer to write something, it's, you know, I'm, I'm hearing, you know, the kind of advice in the and the thinking of all the lessons learned from all the, the, the great musicians that I've been able to be around and, and teaching and learning in jazz doesn't just happen, you know, in a lesson format or in a classroom. It happens with every time you play with every musician you ever play with. So, you know, yeah, I, you know, formally studied with Jackie McLean and formerly with Ken Radnowski and with, uh, with, uh, others and David Liebman. Uh, but, informally and goodness I mean there's so many musicians. Uh also formally and not you know I'm a doctoral student, uh Jim McNeely and Justin DeChocho, those are kind of formal Phil Markowitz, formal um, kind of teacher student uh relationships and Gary Dial in a way. But you know, there's so many musicians, you know, thousands that I've been more more maybe not thousands, maybe hundreds and hundreds that I've been fortunate to play with, maybe thousands, who knows? Hmm. On the stage or in the studio, or you know, that I've learned something each and every step of the way. So everybody I've ever played with, I've learned something from. Uh, at least that's that's the goal, right? You know, yeah. You know, every time you you have your instrument, every time you're in a music situation, your your ears are open, your eyes are open. if You're trying to to make the best music possible in the situation. You end up learning something, you know, from from everybody. So you know, I, I, that's the approach I try to take. So yeah. I named some of my former mentors, but, you know, I learned a ton from working with Horace Silva, you know. I learned a lot about just listening to him comp, the rhythm and the, the intensity which, with, with which he played all the time, you know, and how much he perspired. He had to change shirts between sweat, between uh, sets because he was working so hard, you know. And he was, at that point in his life, he was in, I think, Horace was in the 70s by the time, uh, he was around seventy, uh, maybe a little older by the time I started working with him. And, and you know, he he was he was uh, so you know so fiery when he was on stage, and so supportive of all of our efforts as young musicians, you know. And I really that really always stayed with me. He never told us. He was very specific about what kind of sounds he wanted. But once once he communicated that to us, he kind of let us just play. And I remember uh, the front line in that group was me and Ryan Kaiser, a great trumpet player. And uh, we never said a word about how to phrase or how to, you know. And Horace didn't tell us how to. He just heard it and knew that we were doing something, and, and he was fine with it, you know. And uh, Ryan and I never said a word. We just listened to each other, and we knew Horace's music, obviously, because everybody does. Everybody studies Horace Silver's music. I learned a lot from from how much freedom Horace gave us. Even though his concept is very well defined, you know, he wanted us to be free when we improvised, which I always appreciated. And uh, and Tom Harrell as well. He kind of gave all of us when I worked with him. He gave all of us a lot of freedom too. He never, I don't ever remember once hearing Tom give any sort of musical direction to any one of us that were playing with him. You know, he just hired the people that he really, really thought would fit his music at the given time, and he just let them play. He just let us play, which I really, really appreciate. And I try to do that with my own groups. I don't – there's some band leaders that want a specific sound on this song, and I want you to sound like this person on this song or this person on that song, you know. And to me, that goes against so much of what makes – what we do beautiful, it's like, this, you know, if someone has really done their homework and understands how things work in and in, uh, how things have worked traditionally and how, you know, the great masters have, have uh, accomplished certain things, you know, and they have a firm rooting and all that, then the whole point is to be free and to improvise, you know. John Coltrane wasn't trying to sound like or Miles didn't tell John Coltrane to sound like Sonny Rollins or to sound like you know uh, Sonny Stitt. He wanted him to sound like John Coltrane. That's why he hired him. You know. So uh, I try to do that with the with the bands I put together. The musicians who I really feel will fit uh, a certain uh, you know the music that I that I want to present. And let's play. You know, that's the fun part.
1: Almost oh, sounds like it's. That's the role of being a good parent. You provide the discipline, that framework for discipline, but mm-hmm. allow that growth through freedom.
2: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you want someone you want someone to realize their full potential, you know, and not be shackled to some, you know, idea that you ideal that you hold dear, you know. You you, you instill what you want. You know the music will tell you you know what is necessary at any given time you know the putting the words you know sometimes it, it you know it can it can do a lot more harm than good, I guess, and I've seen it do both i've I've been around musicians who felt like you know uh the leader in in whatever their situation was, the band leader was just not willing to let them explore uh too much creative. They wanted a certain, a certain result every time, you know. Yeah. And as a really creative improviser, that, there's not much that that not much good that can come out of those kind of situations.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I'm
2: thankful that to, to band leaders, I've you know some of the band leaders I work with, like Horace, like Tom Harrell, and others as well, you know, um, Louis Nash and Avishai and Cohen, and. Uh, a lot of band leaders that I work with have have really been, you know, open to to hearing people express, and, and and that's a that's a, you know, that's a credit to them,
1: and it's it's how the music develops. Absolutely. So let me ask you this: I don't want to get too highly reflective, but I do want to point out, you know, you've had a, a number of solo albums. You've been. Uh, Side man on over seventy five albums, played with Horace and Tom Harrell, Freddie Hubbard. The list goes on at places like the Village Vanguard. You know, when you release the new album, it probably opens up a level of reflection on your career. But when you do look back on your career, how do you feel about what you've done, where you're at right now, standing in this moment in two thousand seventeen? I feel very blessed. You
2: know, there's there's a lot of great musicians who haven't had the same opportunities I've had, you know, and I, I feel very less blessed to have been put in the situations I've been put in and be put around the people that I've been put around. So I don't take any of that for granted. At the same time, I always feel like there's more to do, you know. There, there's a lot more I, I could be doing right now, you know, and, and that's the great part about music is you never reach the end. You're always looking, you're always searching, you're always um, uh, inspired to find more, to express more, to, to create more, you know, so... Uh, that's that's where I'm at too. Uh, I don't spend too much time reflecting. I, I'm 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 uh, more interested in what's 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 next. What, what you know, what, what's what's new. What what can I you know
1: figure out today? Absolutely. Well, the opinion of the industry is obviously very high. You've re- you've received a lot of brass from you know ASCAP awards. Uh, in 2004, you won. You were the winner of the Chamber of Music, America's New Works. There's a, there's a lot of awards that you've won over the years, and I don't want to know what your favorite one was, but what award did you get that just surprised you? You didn't expect it, doing your thing, you hear about it, and you're like, wow.
2: Wow. I guess all of the above, you know. There's some awards that That you apply for Obviously You know Like the Chamber of Music America Award The the composition grants And you apply for So you're in The whole process And you're hoping You know You're hoping That it works out And you know um, And the Grammys as well You know You apply for that You know They they don't just come calling You have to apply And and submit certain things To categories But every single award Is an honor You know Because there's so many people That apply to them You know There's There's a so many talented, deserving people who apply them. So you know, every single time that, that I'm recognized, I don't take any of it for granted. I, I I feel very fortunate uh, that people
1: think highly of me. So let me ask you this: You have had the opportunity in your career to play with musicians that a lot of people as fans like me would have loved to have seen live. You know, mm-hmm. like Freddie and Tom. I, I actually did see Tom Harrell come through Kansas City at one point, and that was a beautiful mm-hmm. show. But there are so many musicians. So let me ask you, let me take you out of that mold for a minute. Mm -hmm. And I put that jazz DeLorean in front of you and tell you, you can punch in the digits to the year and the place and see a musician in the annals of jazz. Who are you going to go see and why? Wow, that I've
2: never had a chance to see live before. I would love to see Miles. I never got a chance to see Miles live. Um, (laughs) Any of the bands that he played in, I would have loved to see. I listened to him on record. And just the power of his rhythm is the first thing that, that strikes me. It's unbelievable, you know. There's never a note out of place rhythmically, you know. And then the power he commanded with his sound and just with his, just the in, in the kind of urgency with which he played, you know, it's, it's, I would love to, to, to hear that live. Um, Dexter Gordon. I never got a chance to hear Dex live. Funny story. Um, I played in a group for a while. Actually, the group still plays, and I played with them recently. uh, That pays tribute to Dexter's called the Dexter Gordon Legacy Ensemble. And um, the first uh, the first iteration of it was three tenor saxophone players. Uh, The concept was to get three tenor tenor players along with Dexter's rhythm section from. The late 70s when he came back from Europe. So that would be uh, Rufus Reed and, and uh, George Cables and Eddie Gladden. Well, Eddie had passed away uh, right before um, this group had gotten together. So um, Leroy Williams was on drums. And so we were rehearsing for uh, some performances at Lincoln Center. And uh, there's three tenor saxophone players, me, myself, uh be myself, that's one person, sorry,
1: uh, <laughs> Jerry
2: Weldon and Wayne Uh and all three of whom I would say have pretty good-sized saxophone sounds, tenor sounds, right? And so we were playing a melody. I think it was Fried Bananas, one of Dexter's twos. We were playing a melody in unison. And in the middle of us playing this unison melody in the rhythm section, you know, cooking behind us, George Cables jumps off the piano bench, and yells at the three of us, now that sounds like Dexter. It <laughs> took three of us to equal the amount of sound that one man could pull out of his horns. I thought that was nice. <laughs> I would have loved to hear that live. I would have loved to hear Dexter live. Wow, but, um, yeah. But a lot of my, you know, oh, oh, goodness, a lot of my uh, heroes I've gotten a chance to hear live and, and play with. I, I would have loved to hear um, Sonny Stitt. Uh, I would love to hear Sidney Bechet, uh, Coleman Hawkins. I mean, there's a little bird, of course, you know, train. There's so many, you know. Absolutely. I, I wish I could have heard. Um, Duke Ellington. Um, yeah, the list goes on and on and on.
1: Yeah, it's a hard it's a hard English. question. Yeah, yeah.
2: I would have loved to hear all of
1: them live, yeah. Yeah, I would have too. Absolutely. Born,
2: born a bit too late to hear a lot of them, but
1: yeah. Yeah, yeah. So let me ask you this. As a practitioner of jazz, someone that obviously loves the craft as much as you do, you dedicated your life to it, I had a very simple question for you. Why why do you love jazz? Uh you know, that's a very simple question, but it's
2: a very complicated question too. I mean I mean, I hate to get all philosophical, but why why does anyone love anything? You know? Um it it just, you just do, you know, you can look at it and say, well, you know, because it gives me pleasure or because I really feel like it's valuable or because, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's culturally relevant to me and historically relevant to our, our country here in the United States. And, you know, I can say all those things, but at the end of the day, I love it just because I do, you know, there's really no rational explanation why, you know, it's not, you know, if, I'm a musician, so if I was really, you know, being rational about it, I would fall in love with, you know, whatever is most popular today, hip hop or, or, you know, rock or, or, or something like that that would, that would, you know, if I was as successful in that, in those realms as I have been fortunate to be in jazz, I'd be a multi-millionaire right now, you know? So I guess, if uh you know it makes no sense why you know it's just I love it because I do you know and uh and it's not to say I don't love other forms of music but i love I love music uh, first and foremost i mean there's so many there's so many um uh ways that humans have expressed themselves in musically that, that I think are so vital to our existence, so you know i I'm not just you know just because i identify as a quote-unquote jazz musician, you know, it doesn't mean that that I uh, am not as uh, open and interested in, in what other uh, people have deemed others are. When you say the word jazz, automatically some people, most people will turn their ears off at that point, you know, because they don't identify with it or they feel like it's this or feel like it's that. Some people will be drawn toward it, you know, uh, but you just said a word you have you don 't know what there 's no sound attached to that word you know it 's just a word, and the validity of that word is you know has always been in question you know whether that word is a is a <clears throat> is a word we even should be using to describe music because it doesn 't have anything to do with music. the word you know has a lot of different roots from um uh, a pitch in baseball to meaningless chatter to the sexual acts. I mean, the word jazz, you know, uh, it had nothing to do with music. So, I mean, uh, I, I'm kind of going on in a bunch of different directions answering your question. But, um, yeah, I, I feel like uh, uh, for me as a musician, you know i i uh, my goal is to to make the best music possible. The fact that I love to improvise and I love to do it in a group setting and there's a set of artists that I really feel speaks to me and you know and there's a tradition and a, a kind of a sound experience that I you know, p- kind of prefer to perform over all others you know that I guess many people would call that jazz, so I'll go with that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. No, that's a great way. Yeah, no, you packed it. My final question for you is this. Everyone has a version of who you are, your family, your friends, your business folk, those that you play for on stage and those that buy your CD. But when you wake up and face the world, who does Jimmy think he is? Who do you think you are?
2: Uh, who do you think you are? Who
1: do you think you are? <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, first of all, I am I, a man of God. I'm a man who's, uh, who has, you know, been uh, blessed in many, many, many ways. And credit, uh, credit God with, with all the blessings I've had in my life. I'm a Christian man, so I, you know, I do my best every day. To love people and love myself as Jesus did. Um, so I, that's the first. That's the first identity I I want. You know, I hope that I reflect. Uh, second, I'm a family man. You know, I'm, you know, whatever we do in our career, whatever we do in our life, you know, it, for me, it it always comes second to the people we love and the people we have chosen to share our lives with my spouse, my kids. Um, and you know, I am, I'm a musician third. Um, that's, that's what I eat, live, breathe, sleep, you know, That's, that's that's what I, that's what I love, you know? So, um, Anything that has to do with music, you know, I, I'm fortunate to be able to perform it, to write it, um, I'm fortunate to be able to record it and produce it, and I'm fortunate to be able to uh, teach it as well. Um, I, I get great enjoyment out of, um, uh, you know, coaching musicians with less experience than the younger musicians who want, uh, who want the same things I've been able to do and try to point them in the right direction as well. Uh, so, yeah, I, I would say those things. Uh, uh, you know, a man of God, uh, a lover of humans, um, a family man, and a musician. Beautiful. And besides that, you know, I'm a, you know, I'm a pretty terrible golfer. Uh, <laughs> uh, my, my swimming pool isn't all that clear, so I'm trying to work on that. <laughs> uh, uh, what else um, uh, I do love uh, watching sports and uh, playing a little bit you know over the years but I don't play anything because like now I just kind of I'm a big fan sports fan and, and things like that so yeah
1: right on Jimmy that's a great way to sum everything up thank you for taking some time out for me today it was a pleasure I appreciate it alright
0: my pleasure thanks for thanks for having me Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York, Connecticut, Kansas City, and spots all over the world giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Jimmy for his courage, his time, and his honesty. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store. Visit NeonJazz at YouTube.com. And for everything Neon Jazz, go to the NeonJazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends.
2: on jazz.